Hello, my name's Rachel, and I'm going to read the second Bible reading. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 to 22. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much for the warm welcome. It's good to be here. I think this is my fourth or fifth visit to Surrey Hills, and uh, it's always been an enjoyable time, so thank you. As we come to the word of God, let's stop and let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word in a language that we can understand. And yet without your spirit, we cannot understand uh, these words. So please now, help us to understand them and help us, Lord God, to be able to apply them and so bring you glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Darkness. What comes to mind when you think about darkness? Now, most of us think it's dark when we go on the outside at night and the street lights are on. But that's not darkness, is it? Darkness is when you hold your hand in front of you and you can't see it. That's real darkness. But imagine living like that all the time, in all of your life. Not physically, but spiritually. And so that's what I want us to be thinking about this morning in this passage from Matthew chapter 4. It would be unimaginable, wouldn't it, to live in darkness all the time. And yet when the Bible wants to describe our spiritual condition without Christ, it uses words like death and trapped and darkness. Because the reality is that a person who does not know Jesus is trapped in darkness, darkness caused by sin. But the paradox is that people that are trapped in spiritual darkness, and I was like that before I knew Christ at the age of 17, they actually think they're living in the light, don't they? Uh, they think that, um, that there's not a problem. What hope can there be? Well, this morning, Jesus answers that. He tells us how it's possible to go from living in spiritual darkness to living in the light of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But first, let me give you a quick one-minute geography lesson. Look at verse 15 in the Bible. If we can just go to the next slide, please, if possible. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, it's talking about up in the north of Israel uh, where there were uh, surrounding nations. Um, so it's, it's in that part 
of, of Israel. Centuries before, when Assyria wanted to come and invade, she came knocking on the door of these particular parts of Israel, up to Naphtali and Galilee. It was good land, it was attractive land, and that's why invaders would come and steal crops and so on. But it was also an area where they, they mixed with the other nations. And what came with that mix? Well, the influence of the nation's gods, their idols. In Exodus 19, God called Israel to himself after she'd left Egypt and said, you are my people and this is your role. You are to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so in the Old Testament, we find that the model of mission is this, that the people of God are to live such an attractive life that the nations were to come to Israel and say, what makes you different? Why is your life so rich, so blessed? Why do you not have civil war and all these other problems? And they would be able to say, it's because we worship Yahweh, the Lord that made heaven and earth. Let us tell you about him. And so the model in the Old Testament is come. Come and hear about God. And you see that sometimes, you know, the, the Queen of Sheba, she comes to hear about why Solomon is so blessed and so on. But you know the story. Israel was unfaithful. She was exiled. She lost her distinctive witness. She forgot who she was, that she was meant to be a light shining among the nations. In the New Testament, the model of mission is not come, it's go, isn't it? And that was the Matthew 28 reading this morning. Jesus says, all authority, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. So Old Testament is come, New Testament, it's go. And that's us today, go. Now, when Israel decided to be unfaithful, none of it caught God by surprise. He knew it would happen. But this is where verse 15 and verses, um, verses 15 and 16 fit into the picture. Because here is God's promise. Here is God's promise that one day people that were Gentiles would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking at it, verse 16, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so we're told two things here. First of all, they live in darkness. And secondly, they live in the shadow of death. And again, this is spiritual darkness. It's ignorance and about God and his ways. It's people that have walked away from God. And it's not just theoretical. It's real. This is darkness that expresses itself in, in superstition and fear or, or hopelessness and despair. It has a profound and terrible impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. This is no small matter. It, it has devastating consequences. Think about the television news each evening if you watch that. What are we told is the worst thing that can happen to somebody on the TV news? And that's fairly answer, easy to answer. Death. The worst thing that can happen to someone is that they should die in some sort of tragic accident or, or from a terrible disease. They are terrible things. But as far as the Bible is concerned, death is not the worst thing that can happen to somebody. The worst thing is to stand before the living God on the day of judgment, unforgiven. That is a terrible thing. 
And that's the sort of darkness that we're talking about here. And when we think about darkness, it's easy to think of parts of the world where, where some terrible things happen in Ukraine, for example. But it also describes Australia today, doesn't it? There are millions of people in, in the city of Melbourne and around Australia right now who live in darkness. And, and praise God, amongst those millions, there are some people that are wondering today, where do I find light? Where do I find hope? Where do I find meaning? People who are looking. There are people out there who, who've got this nagging feeling that there is something beyond the grave, something more, and we have the answer, don't we? in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the great reality. There are millions of Australians today who are living in the shadow of death. And one of the things that COVID has done has put death back on the nation's news feed. So what's the solution? Well, look again at verse 16. That the people living in the land in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has come. And who is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, his coming and the light that he brings is, is so significant, it's compared to the, the rising of the sun after the darkness of night. It's this huge transformation. And where there was once uncertainty, now with the coming of Christ, there's hope, there's answers, there's life. And so we can't afford to underestimate the, the significance of the coming of Christ into this world, it's nothing short of a revolution. And yet the problem is, if you've been a Christian for a while, we tend to take it for granted. But it's a revolutionary thing, that Jesus Christ should enter our world. Um, in John's Gospel, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. It's a, it's a brilliant wordplay. Uh, Jesus is saying that he is God's solution for a people trapped in darkness. It's, it's like one of those movies, you know, where you, the, the main characters get themselves in such awful trouble. You think, this is it. How can they escape from this? You know, the water's rising. You think Star Wars. You know, they're all going to drown. And then suddenly at the last minute, there's a solution. That's the sort of scenario we've got here. We were trapped in darkness but Jesus is God's solution. He's rescued us, an unexpected rescue. And when he does arrive, look at, look at his message in verse 17. If we can go to the next slide, please. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, all through the Old Testament, we find God running what you might call a series of advertisements. And this is their message. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. It's there in Genesis. It's there in Exodus. It's there in the Psalms, in Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's scattered all through the Old Testament. And then suddenly Jesus comes and he says, this is it. The advertisement, the promise has now come true. Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a dramatic moment. The night is over. The Christ has finally come and God has kept his promise. But where is this promise first made? It's not down in Jerusalem where the temple is. No, it's up in Naphtali in Galilee where the people first walked away from God and went into idolatry. That's the place that first gets to hear about the coming of God's kingdom and the arrival of the Messiah. And it's all part of God's plan that Gentiles 
like many of us here today, should be included in God's people. We get to be included in the people of God. And notice what he tells us to do here in verse 17. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. First, we are to repent. We're to stop sinning. We're to stop rebelling against God. Action is needed and we do it now. It's a summons to action. It's, you know, when your house is burning down, you don't think, oh, I'll do something about it tomorrow. You do it today. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Repent, turn away from your sin, turn to me, do it now. And there's an urgency in the words of Jesus. For he says the kingdom of God is approaching. The king is finally here. And his name is Jesus. And as, as the Gospel of Matthew goes on, it's quite clear. Jesus is the king. We must submit to him. We are rebellious people. And he's come, not to have, he's come to serve us. And he does that by dying on the cross to pay for our rebellion, my rebellion. And then he is raised to new life. And he offers us his forgiveness and amnesty. And that's the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who came into this world, who was born as a man, who died to pay the penalty for our sin, who rose from the dead and one day is returning triumphant and will bring the kingdom in in all of its fullness. That's the message. And we've got no authority to change that message. If you look at church history, particularly the 20th century, any Christian group that changed the message either just descended into, well, it just went out of existence, or its numbers just shrank, because the message so often, when it's changed, becomes just like the message that our culture preaches. There's no distinction, no difference. We've got a distinctive message about the Christ who rescues and who changes people's lives individually. So please come back to Matthew chapter 4, and Ying, if we can go to the next slide, please. Sorry, stay there. Sorry. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. So they're throwing their nets into the sea to catch fish, and Jesus says, abandon your nets. Come and follow me. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, look, here are your options. Go away and think about it for a day or two, then, then come back. No, he says, come, follow me, in verse 18. It's a demanding call. It's the call of the kingdom's king, and he compels them. He compels them, come, and they follow him. I wonder if Jesus appeared today, and he issued that call, how would we respond? Would we feel the urgency? The Bible has an incredibly strong view of discipleship. And yet sometimes in our churches at large, we almost water it down to, you know, just come to church once a week and that will just keep you in God's good books. No. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, he must, and this word is almost heretical in our current age, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, herself. 
And listen to the words of Jesus as he goes on. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, and the word you there, it, it's a plural word. Um, a church should be a fishing cooperative, shouldn't it? And I think it's something of what we saw this morning in that terrific children's talk. It's a fishing cooperative where we work together, we use our gifts together so that we might fish for people, that people might hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and come and join us and then go on to do more fishing, to bring people into the kingdom. For some of us, that's going to mean fishing in our workplaces with our friends and our neighbours. For a minority of us, it will mean fishing overseas in another context. One of the problems is we, we, we live in a very risk-averse age. Um, earlier this year, I pulled up at the traffic lights. I was a passenger, thankfully, and um, looking at a truck that was next to us, and it had all these stickers on the side of the truck. This is how to get into the truck, how to get out of the truck, and don't do this while you're in the truck, and so on. You know, everywhere you go today, there's a sticker telling you, do this, don't do that. And one of the problems is that sometimes that Discipleship involves risk. It involves risk. And yet we live in an age that says, oh, don't do that. That might not work out or you might get hurt. You can't, have, you can't avoid risk with discipleship. Think of the Apostle Paul. Acts 16, he has a dream, there's a vision. A man in Macedonia says, come, come and bring the gospel to Europe. What if Paul had got up the next morning and said, that's risky, it won't work, it might fail. The gospel would never have gone to Europe at that point, and yet it went. Or think of the early missionaries to Vanuatu. What happened was, uh, before many of them got there, there'd been uh, European traders who'd gone to the islands, uh, they'd ripped off the, the new Vanuatu people, and when the missionaries came, the, the, the locals thought, oh, more traders, and they clubbed them to death on the beach. Now, these were men that had put in hours and hours of study of Hebrew and Greek and preparation, and that's as far as they got in God's purposes. What are the mission societies back in Canada and Scotland and England had said, oh, it's too risky. We can't afford to send in more people. If they'd done that today, Vanuatu would not be at least the nominally Christian nation that it is that just had a Christian president whose term finished, who, by the way, the PWU of Victoria paid for that president to do his Bible college training in, in Sydney. You never know who you train with, I'll end up. But what are the mission societies that had said no? Vanuatu would not be where it is today. Following Jesus involves risk. I love this story. I know it's a Sydney story. Back in the early 1980s, the then Anglican Archbishop of Sydney said to churches that were strong and vibrant in the eastern part of Sydney, I want to challenge you, some of you people, sell your homes. Sell your homes. Move out to the new church plants in western Sydney. And that meant moving churches, moving homes. That meant leaving jobs sometimes. That meant kids going to new schools. But they did it. And today there are some flourishing Bible-based Anglican churches in the, in the western suburbs of Sydney. But there was risk there. The church plant might close. The kids might not like school and so on and so on. Mission involves risk wherever God places us. And what do we do? We hear the call of our master and we go and serve. And so there's a paradox here. Sometimes God's purposes are advanced through suffering, not by avoiding suffering. 
And mission has its risks. You know, the person in the workplace that laughs at you because you go to church and you say you follow Jesus. What, are you crazy? You believe in this fairy story? There are risks. So how do we respond to all of this? What do we do with this whole idea, this whole concept of mission? We have to remember that God's plan is not small. God's plan is to reach the whole world. I mean, think about the disciples. How many of them were there after Pentecost? You know, there were about maybe 100, 150 maximum. And what are they told to do? Not to go and reach Jerusalem, reach the whole world. (laughs) That's an impossible task unless God is in it. God is involved in mission. And that means for for many of us, looking around our our backyard for gospel opportunities. And it's so encouraging uh, to see this church, your church, doing that so that people might leave darkness and come to light. Some of you are once in that category. So I want to challenge you today to do four things. First of all, pray. Jesus calls, calls on us to pray to pray for workers for the harvest. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, and that word ask there, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So pray. Pray and pray and pray. Adopt a missionary. Great to hear you praying for Andrew Adams this morning. Thank you, Amanda. Adopt a missionary, get their prayer letter, and pray and pray and pray. Because overseas mission work can be incredibly tough and, and, and hard. Give. It's expensive. Uh, there's pre-filled training costs, there's setup, there's language learning, insurance, superannuation, and it's like a taxi meter. Um, to send a family overseas costs about seventy dollars to $100,000 a year. For Japan, you're looking somewhere north of 140000 a year. It's not cheap. But it's a privilege. It's a privilege to financially partner with somebody who's involved in, in mission work. And again, whether that be here in our own backyard or overseas. The third thing is, and this is the most threatening for most churches, send. Send people. Send your best. Send your best. And that will hurt. If you've got someone in the congregation that says, I want to go and serve overseas, send them. <laughs> Do it with gladness and joy. It will hurt. Uh, Julie and I know of one church in that regional East of Wales. They sent some fan- their assistant minister, fantastically gifted. That hurt, that hurt the church. <laughs> but they sent and they did it with joy. They did it with joy. And then God sent along a replacement assistant minister who was also brilliantly gifted. So you never know what God has around the corner. So please uh, think about that as well. Do that. Just, just remember this. We in the Australian church have so many resources. You might not think that. But did you know that something like 90 to 95% of the world's pastors have had no more than six months training? In some cases, less than that. A friend of mine says they've had six minutes training. And so one of the things that we want to do as APWM, that you want to do, is that we send some of our people overseas to help run courses for those pastors just for a week or so. Uh, in the refugee camps, uh, sometimes in East Timor, in parts of South Asia, so that people can hear, uh, sorry, be better equipped to be able to tell people about Jesus. So please work hard at developing a culture in your church so that when someone in the fifth pew stands up one day and says, I want to go and serve overseas, you go, 
that's normal instead of that's unusual. A friend of mine, uh, he is from Queensland. He told his ministry peers, who was a minister, I want to go and serve in Japan. And the response he got was, you want to do what? That's not the response you want. You want to be, you want to go and do this? Let's send you with joy. And finally, go. Go yourself. Go across the street. Go and talk to the, the mums and dads at soccer or school or uni. One of the great dangers I think we face in Australia is it's such a brilliant country that it's very easy to be complacent and to forget that there are people out there that are going to hell. Really encouraging to see on your news sheet that you've got a preaching series coming up and you're going to talk about hell. Most churches today in Australia are not talking about hell at all. Somehow it's, it's dropped off our radar. But it's real. And we need to not be complacent. This is real. Darkness is real. And God will say, what's the hurry? This always later. You can always reach your neighbours later, or you can always go overseas later. But that's what Satan would love us to say. He'd say, later, later, later. But now is the time. You see, we're an incredibly privileged people. We once lived in darkness, and now we've come to know the light of Christ. Listen to what Peter says as I close. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the mercy you've shown to us, for the way in which through your spirit you've opened our eyes so that we might know Christ. Help us, O God, to have a burden for our friends, our neighbours, our workmates who don't know the Lord Jesus that you might even use us as a means of bringing them to know him. Please take this church, we ask, and use it to be a lighthouse in this community so that people might come streaming in to hear of the word of life. And we pray this all in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen.